We're going to be looking at a passage from the Old Testament in the book of Zechariah. Probably haven't read much in Zechariah, but there's one of the most beautiful pictures of, of Christ and of the gospel, the good news that we celebrate. One of the most beautiful pictures um, that, that I think there is in all, all the Bible, in any of the writings that are the Bible, is in Zechariah chapter 3. We're going to look at that. What we're going to talk about tonight is the issue of beauty, how it drives us, how do we get it. I want to start with a couple quotes um, as those little outlines are going around. A couple quotes um, from books. These are not, um, both these ladies I'm going to quote from are not Christians. Actually, the one lady did get converted after she wrote this piece that I'm quoting from. Um, I, I don't need to read these quotes, but I think they're helpful in sort of framing our discussion tonight. As we think about the role of beauty in our culture and the way it gets sold to us. First is a, a quote from a lady, Jean Kilborn, a very, very wonderful book on the power of advertising and the way it shapes our thoughts and attitudes, called Can't Buy My Love. And she writes this, 17, she's talking about Seventeen magazine. Seventeen refers to itself as a girl's Bible. Girls of all ages get the message that they must be flawlessly beautiful, and above all these days, they must be thin. Even more destructively, they get the message that, that it, this is possible. That with enough effort and self-sacrifice and the right products, they can achieve this ideal. Advertising constantly promotes the core belief of American culture. That we can recreate ourselves, transform ourselves, transcend our circumstances, but with a twist. For generations, Americans believed that this could be achieved if we worked hard enough. Today, the promise is that we can change our lives instantly, effortlessly, by winning the lottery, selecting the right mutual fund, having a fashion makeover, losing weight, having tighter abs, buying the right car or soft drink. It is this belief that such transformation is possible that drives us. The American belief that we can transform ourselves makes advertising images much more powerful than they otherwise would be. I like how later in the book she says, you know, some people when I go around to college campuses and I talk about this, the material from this book, she says, um, often there'll be students in the back of the room that will say, ah, we're not affected by advertising. It doesn't bother us. It doesn't affect us. And she says, it's usually guys in the back with Budweiser caps, <laughs> you know, sitting back there wearing advertising, right, but not thinking that it has any role in, in their lives whatsoever. So that's Gene Kilborn um, talking about Seventeen Magazine. This next one is from Naomi Wolf. Naomi Wolf, you may be familiar with a very important book she wrote called The Beauty Myth, which is worth reading. But later, a couple years later, she wrote an article called The Porn Myth. The Porn Myth. And listen to what she says. Uh, She's a feminist um, writer, so that's kind of the context which she's writing here. She says, as a benefit the other night, I saw Andrea Dworkin, the anti-porn activist most famous in the 80s for her conviction that opening the floodgates of pornography would lead men to see real women in sexually debased ways. If we did not limit pornography, she argued, before internet technology made that prospect a technical impossibility, most men would come to objectify women as they objectified porn stars and treat them accordingly. In a kind of domino theory, she predicted rape and other kinds of sexual mayhem would surely follow. So was she right or wrong? She was right about the warning, wrong about the outcome. As she foretold, pornography did breach the dike that separated a marginal adult private pursuit 
from the mainstream public arena. The whole world, post-internet, did become pornographized. Young men and women are indeed being taught what sex is, how it looks, what its etiquette and expectations are by pornographic training, and this is having a huge effect on how they interact. But the effect is not making men into raving beasts. On the contrary, the onslaught of porn is responsible for deadening male libido in relation to real women and leading men to see fewer and fewer women as quote-unquote porn-worthy. Far from having to fend off porn-crazed young men, young women are worrying that as mere flesh and blood, they can scarcely get, let alone hold, their attention. Here is what young women tell me on college campuses when the subject comes up. They can't compete, and they know it. For how can a real woman with pores and her own breasts and even sexual needs of her own, let alone with speech that goes beyond more and more, you big stud, how can she possibly compete with a cyber vision of perfection, downloadable and distinguishable at will, who comes, so to speak, utterly submissive and tailored to the consumer's least specification. That's pretty scary, isn't it? How do you fix that? How do you fix that? We're going to talk about how we fight against this. Because God is out, God is out to draw forth from us desires and clothe us in such beauty that we would be able to stand and fight and not be squeezed into the culture without thinking. Christian community should be a place where beauty is defined differently. It should be a place where the cross has deconstructed and reconstructed our idea of what beauty is. And it's incredibly important for us. So let's look uh, at God's word and see what he has to say about this. I think it's on there on your little sheet there. If you didn't get a sheet, it's in Zechariah chapter 3. Fascinating passage. Zechariah, the book of Zechariah, is, is a series of visions, night visions that Zechariah has. Zechariah is both a prophet and a priest, and he gets these visions that are really way out there, way out there at times. This is one of them. This is one of his night visions. That's where we start. Then he, talking about, it's almost, I often wonder if this is where Charles Dickens got the Christmas Carol idea, because there's this angel who basically takes uh, Zechariah and shows him these visions at night. Um, and that's what she's saying here. Then he, meaning the angel, and this is Zechariah himself writing. Then he, the angel, showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. This is his vision. He sees Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him, while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. 
If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Pray with me, if you will. Lord, we do thank you for this passage of Scripture. We pray that you'd help us to understand it and to, and to grasp the significance for how we think about beauty, for how we think about you, and how we relate to you. We pray you would help us. Send your Spirit to help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me uh, describe the scene for you a little bit. The scene, because it's, it's not one that we experience in our church. It's a little different setting. But what's going on here really is Joshua, the high priest, standing before the Lord on the Day of Atonement. And you say, say why do you say on the Day of Atonement? And it's because this, that the throne of God in Scripture is regarded as being where? Do you know? Well, you should know because the Raiders of the Lost Ark movie, you know, has come back into everybody's consciousness. The throne of God is on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, right? In other words, to stand before the Lord in his presence, the one time that the high priest would do that in the Jewish uh, religion is on the Day of Atonement. There was one day that the high priest would stand before the Lord, and would minister before the Lord. All of the rest of the times, they had to stand outside of the Holy of Holies. They were not allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. So the setting here, and Joshua, or Zechariah knows the setting because he himself is a priest. The setting is Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And yet if you read carefully, uh, you might have noticed sometimes it says the angel of the Lord, and then it seems to interchange it with the Lord, and the angel of the Lord and the Lord. It really is the Lord. He's standing before the Lord, ministering, on the Day of Atonement, in the Holy of Holies. But here's the thing. As Zechariah sees this picture, a picture that he would know about, a picture he would cherish, the one day that the high priest gets to go before the Lord and offer up sacrifice for all the people, on, as, as Zechariah sees this scene pictured for him, there are several things that don't belong there. Two things in particular that's important for us to see. The first is Satan. Satan, the accuser, does not belong in the Holy of Holies as the high priest is standing there ministering, offering sacrifices for the people. So you've got Satan there, and he's accusing. And he has every right to accuse because there's another detail that doesn't belong there. And that, and that is the fact that Joshua, the high priest, is dressed in filthy clothes. Filthy clothes. Now, the NIV translation that I read from is actually being a little wimpy at that point. Because the, the word used there for filthy is always a word that means excrement. It's an ugly picture. It's an ugly picture of Joshua the high priest standing before the Lord on the Day of Atonement in the Holy of Holies, in the holiest place. And as he's standing there, he's covered in excrement. Now, I don't know about you, 
But we generally dress up when we have to meet somebody important, right? I don't know. I mean, some of you all know have graduated or will graduate, or maybe you had to do interviews for summer jobs. You didn't, you didn't walk around in excrement, right? It's, it's a ridiculous image. And certainly you would never do that before the Lord. You would never stand before the Lord clothed in excrement. But you know what you, all, you need to understand is that this is the day of all days when he needs to be clean. You see, there are all these elaborate rituals that the high priest went through to make sure that when he went into the Holy of Holies and he represented all of God's people before the Lord, that on this day he would be clean. Do you know that there actually is this tradition, and I think it's, I think it's a good basis for it, that when the, the, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, he wore a robe that had bells around the bottom, around the hem at the bottom, bells, and a rope tied around his ankle. So that when he went into the Holy of Holies, the people outside could hear if he dropped dead or not. They, they half expected him to drop dead when he went before the presence of the Lord. And so they had bells so that they could hear if he was still walking around in there. If those bells quit, well, that's where the rope came in. Because nobody wanted to go in there after him. And they'd pull him out. So, so this, is, this is a really serious thing. What is God trying to say by showing Zechariah and by showing us a picture of the high priest on the Day of Atonement in the Holy of Holies covered in excrement and Satan, the accuser, is there accusing him? Well, I I think you need to understand a little bit more about the cultural background to understand uh, the significance of this picture that we see here. I don't know if you you know this or not, but not only did the high priest wear the bells and the rope, he went through elaborate preparations before the Day of Atonement. They would, they would take turns being the high priest. You see this actually in the Gospels where it talks about so-and-so was high priest that year. They would take turns being high priest. It was a great privilege. But you also had to work really hard and you had to study the rituals. You had to make sure that you got them just right. And, and some of the things that they would do to make sure that the high priest could carry out his job And his job really was to go before the Lord and intercede for the people and ask the Lord to forgive their sin and offer up sacrifices for the people. It was a very important thing. Communion with God was was really banking upon the fact that he did his work and did it well. Okay, So they would do all kinds of things to make sure that his work would be acceptable by God, that he'd be able to accomplish this task. And so for one thing they would do is they would take the high priest. If it was your turn to be high priest that year, you would be isolated from anybody for a whole week before the Day of Atonement because you might end up going into a house where a dead body was or you might uh, end up shaking hands with somebody who was ritually unclean. There were all kinds of things that you could do that would mess it up, that you wouldn't be clean. So they would isolate the high priest for a whole week. He would stay in a special apartment there at the temple to make sure he wouldn't be um, unclean or come into contact with anything unclean. Not only that, the night before the big day, he would pull an all-nighter. He would pull an all-nighter with his friends, and he would, they would pray, they would fellowship together, they would go over and over and over exactly what he was supposed to do so that he could do it without thinking about it. Right? So he pulled an all-nighter with his friends. He would practice the rituals over and over. The Day of Atonement would come, and he would begin the cleansing rituals. 
the cleansing rituals would begin before sunrise. Throughout the day, scholars tell us that he would bathe himself in public no less than five times behind a big linen screen, but out in public where everybody could see and know that he was clean. Again, if he's going to represent you, he needs to be clean. He would wash his hands and his feet at least 10 times. And again, all this in public. And he wore special clothes as well on the Day of Atonement. Every day, I don't know if you know this or not, but every day that the priest did their ministry and offered sacrifices in the temple, they wore bright colored clothes. They didn't wear white, but on this day, he wore white. So he wore special, clean clothes. But then, we see this picture. The high priest standing before God. It's it's like all these rituals, all these preparations, all for naught. Because as he stands there, he's covered in excrement. But I think there's something even more shocking for Zechariah. And it's real, the real beauty of this picture is, it's what the Lord does. What does the Lord do? The Lord silences the accuser by taking away the basis of the accusation. He doesn't just say, be quiet, Satan. He rebukes Satan, and then he deals with the basis upon which Satan can accuse him. Look at this picture. first the the Lord rebukes him, right? And and I love what he says. He says, this one, this high priest standing before me, covered in excrement, he's like a burning stick that I've plucked from the fire. Do you see that? It's in verse 2. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Is not this the one I've chosen to set my love upon? In effect, he says to Satan, Satan, how dare you? How dare you accuse this one? But of course, Satan could say, well, I have every right. After all, he's standing before you boldly in in clothes that are absolutely offensive to you. But, But what God says is, no, the Lord rebuke you. That's my boy you're talking about. How precious would this be for God's people to hear? Zechariah, I don't know if if you know when he was prophesying, Zechariah is prophesying after the exile, after God's people, Israel, had sinned against him and provoked him to anger, he'd sent them off into exile. One of the great things that, that God's people struggled with as a result of the exile, and certainly in the exile, was has God abandoned us? Has God forgotten us? Isaiah picks this up at one point, and he says, you know, has the Lord divorced you? Has the Lord divorced you? If the Lord, if I had divorced you, you would have a certificate of divorce. Because in the Jewish law, if you were going to divorce a woman, you had to give her, you had to write a certificate of divorce, hand it to her and say, I divorce you. And, and Isaiah says, the Lord says through Isaiah, have I divorced you? If so, you would have a certificate of divorce. You don't have one. Therefore, you haven't been divorced. But I think in that, in that passage in Isaiah, we understand a bit of what God's people were feeling. They, they felt God has abandoned us. God, minister, we, we, we worship God in the temple. Now we're exiled from the temple. We can't be there. And not only that, but we've been cut off from God. He didn't come to the rescue the way we thought he did. So he must not care about us. This is what God's people are thinking. How precious, how precious a vision God gives to Zechariah here to say, to hear the Lord say, 
This is my chosen one, snatched from the fire, the one I have chosen to set my love upon. When it, when it seemed that God had hated them, God says, these are my people. But then you see what else God does. He, just, he rebukes the accuser, but he also removes the filthy clothes. Removes the filthy clothes, which basically removes the accusation. He's no longer there. Now, here's what you need to understand. A lot of times in Christian circles, we talk about grace. But I don't think we often understand how huge it really is. Grace is not just God overlooking all the things about you and all the things you've done that would want to make him run away. It's not God just overlooking those things and choosing to not see them. It's God taking away everything that would make him want to run away from you. What is beauty? What is beauty? And what is justification, this this Christian word we talk about? I I think the two are very closely connected. It's important for us to understand that. I often tell my students here at Belmont that basically justification is is the beauty. It's, It's basically getting God's commendation or God's approval because you're beautiful in his sight. It's God saying you're beautiful in my sight because you've done everything I wanted you to do. But none of us can stand before the Lord like that. Can we? Who here has done everything the Lord has asked? Who here even wanted to do everything the Lord asked? Sometimes we flatter ourselves and we think, well, at least my heart was right. No, your heart's not right. You don't, you don't seek to glorify God. I don't seek to glorify God. I, I, I seek to make myself beautiful rather than resting in the beauty that he wants to give me. And, and here we see this beautiful picture that all these things that we think we can clothe ourselves in are really, are filthy. I, I think that's what, what God is going to say here. And he's, he said this in other places, you know. There's that passage in Isaiah 64 where he says that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in his sight. That's a really strong word in the Hebrew as well. Again, the NIV makes it a little more sanitary, but it's basically a word that means menstrual cloths. And if you know anything about the Jewish understanding about blood and all that kind of stuff, the way it would make you unclean. It's, it's, it's a really disgusting image. Even if you don't know anything about that, it's a disgusting image, right? And so, you know, this is what the Lord says about your righteous deeds. Well, if your righteous deeds, God says, are, you know, are like filthy rags, then you can understand this picture is actually a pretty accurate picture of reality. But the Lord removes the filthy clothes and clothes him in rich garments, uh, it, it's a really interesting thing. The, the garments here are not just clean, it's royal. And the head covering they give him is a turban. That's not the kind of hat that a priest wears. A turban is what a king wears. And so here you have not just a picture of him being cleansed and brought back to sort of back to start again, right? Which is what a lot of people think the gospel is. A lot of people think the gospel is, okay, we get ourselves dirty and then God washes us off again and now we better toe the line and keep ourselves clean from here on out or the Lord's going to get us. But what you see here is the picture here is the gospel is bigger than that. He doesn't just get cleansed. He also gets a royal turban. He's cleansed and he's made a king or a queen, right? Beautiful picture. 
But the question is, how do we get this? And how can we, how can we experience what Joshua the high priest experienced here? And, and look at verse 6. How do we know that this is, a, is, is not just a temporary cleansing? Look at verse 6. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you walk in my ways and keep my commandment requirements, sorry, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among those standing here. And you say, okay, great. Okay, well, he cleansed him, but then there's a catch because he says, you have to keep my commandments. You have to walk in my ways. Then you'll get a place to be actually be able to stand here. So that's not really good news, is it? Doesn't seem like good news. I don't know about you. I hope that you're not so naive or arrogant to think that all you really need is a fresh start and that all you need is the Lord to give you another chance. Guys, we need so much more than another chance. Another chance to demonstrate to God that our hearts are fickle. Another chance to demonstrate to God that we put our hope and our trust in so many other things other than him. Uh, Another chance to prove to the Lord that we don't really believe that he's made us beautiful and we feel we better cover our bets and make everybody else think we're beautiful too. What do we think we need another chance? We don't need another chance. We need to be cleansed. We need to be made, um, brought into the family of the king of heaven and made into uh, his sons and daughters. This is, the, this is, look at verse 8. This is not a temporary cleansing. How do we know that? Look at verse 8. Listen, O high priest Joshua and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come, I am going to bring my servant the branch. What is that talking about? Well, here it is. You know, this is an amazing, amazing picture. The branch. Who is the branch? Who is Joshua? You know, there are places in the Old Testament where there are pictures of Jesus, but they're a little cloudy. They're a little difficult to see, a little opaque, if you will. Then there are other passages which are so clear that they smack you right upside the head and say, don't you see? Listen, do you understand that in Hebrew you don't write the consonants? I'm sorry, you don't write the vowels. You only write the consonants. Do you understand that Joshua is the exact same word that we translate Jesus? Zechariah is saying Jesus, the high priest, is standing before the Lord covered in excrement. Jesus is the branch. It's another word uh, used for the root of Jesse, right? You, you understand there's this theme through the Bible um, before this Zechariah passage. So Zechariah is familiar with the prophecies that talk about the branch, about the root, the one who is to come, the Messiah who is to come. Zechariah even tells us that his name is Yeshua. And then look at what he says down here in verse 9. The Lord Almighty says, I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Now, this is symbolic of something to come that will have the effect of removing the sin of this land in a single day. And what you have to understand is Zechariah would have been screaming, how in the world can that be possible? Are you meaning to tell me that we have been celebrating sacrifices At this point, for over a thousand years, every day, twice, three times a day, we've been doing these sacrifices over and over and over and over again. And and God, you're going to do something that will remove the sin of this land in a single day? 
How in the world can this be possible? The way it's possible is because there really was Yeshua who stood before the Lord in the Holy of Holies, covered in excrement, and the Lord obliterated him. He gave him what he deserved for standing before him, covered in excrement. It wasn't his excrement. It was yours, and it was mine. Symbolic of things to come. This this whole passage is so, so powerful a picture of what Jesus experienced. I mean, Jesus... Jesus is is the only one who ever dared stand before the Lord covered in filthiness. He's the branch. But understand, he too had a final week of preparation. Don't you know, the Gospels spend fully half of their chapters talking about Jesus' final week of preparation. He too had an all-night vigil, but do you remember, he didn't have any friends that would stay up with him and pray. They kept falling asleep. And he'd wake them up and he'd say, pray with me. I'm about to undertake the ritual that I have been prepared my whole life for. Won't you just stay up with me? Pray with me. Comfort me. Strengthen me. And then later he was betrayed with a kiss. That was his night. Rather than being surrounded with his friends who prayed and encouraged him, they fell asleep and one of them betrayed him with a kiss. For him it was not a night of encouragement. It was a night of shame and humiliation. And think of his special clothes. He didn't get to wear white linen, what he deserved, but the mocking purple robe of a king. He wore a special hat too. Not the royal turban that he deserved, but a crown of thorns. And he had a public bath. His people spat upon him. Humiliated him. That was our high priest. But what the law and the sacrifices were unable to do for over a thousand years, Jesus accomplished in a single night. The only high priest who ever stood before Jesus, before God, covered in excrement was Jesus, and he was obliterated. But because of that, because of that, we can stand before him. Because Jesus took the wrath of God and drank it to the very dregs. Therefore, we can stand, not having to try to convince him that we deserve to be there because we're so beautiful or we're so clean or because we have a pure heart. We just get off track a little bit. We don't have to pretend about any of that stuff because the sin has been wiped away. What Jesus did dealt with everything that would make God want to run away screaming. Dealt with everything that made us filthy in his eyes dealt with everything that made him disappointed in us. God destroyed Jesus so that we could be clean, so that his people's sins could be wiped away in a single day. And and as I draw this to a close, I just want to say, my prayer is that his boldness would give birth to our boldness. What is it that makes us so afraid to trust in what Jesus has done? to trust in this work? Why do we feel that we have to make other people believe that we're beautiful? Why is it, why is it 
that this beauty that God gives us through the work of Jesus, why isn't it enough for us? What, what are the ways that we try to make ourselves beautiful to God and to others? You see, the, to me, this is such a wonderful picture because it shows us that the most beautiful picture in the Bible is really the ugliest picture in the Bible. I have a friend, um, Mako, who's an artist up in New York, and I was asking him one time about aesthetics and art and these sorts of things. My, my interest was in music, but I was asking him about this, and I, I was saying, you know, there are some people, I don't subscribe to this view, I, I think it's naive, but there are some people who think that if you really study acoustics enough, you can find the perfect, pure music, and you can find objective standards, and you can say this music is good and this music is bad because it conforms to these rules and these laws that are built into the creation. I think that's naive. That's not my topic for today. Um, but he said, you know, it's interesting in the, in, the, in the world of painting and visual art, there's a similar movement. So people that think that if you could sort of analyze sort of the light waveforms that you can sort of get to sort of an objective standard of what is beautiful and what is not, rather than it being, you know, culturally conditioned. But he said, for me, he said, for me, the cross is the most beautiful thing. And that's such a paradoxical image because it's a really grotesque, gruesome, ugly image of a man hanging on a cross, bleeding, struggling to breathe, naked, right? That's what the Bible holds up and says, this is beauty. And your idea of beauty has to conform to this. All other ideas of beauty have to be broken upon the cross. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't think that sunsets are beautiful and whatnot, but the ultimate standard of beauty is a paradoxical, ugly image. What that means for us, what that means for us is that we don't have to submit to any cultural ideas about beauty. It doesn't define us. The beauty that defines us is this, We were covered in excrement, but then Jesus took that covering, took that shame, stood before God, and it was fully dealt with. It was fully dealt with. Do you understand that Jesus doesn't just wake up one day and says, oh, you know, I like this James guy. He's a good guy. I could use him on my team. I think I'll invite him in, you know, let him him be, be part of my people. You know, if that's what the gospel was, how would you know that Jesus wouldn't wake up one day and change his mind? But you see, the reason the gospel is so good is because Jesus silences, the work of Jesus silences every basis upon which Satan or anybody else could accuse you. It doesn't exist anymore. If you're in Christ, you aren't filthy anymore. I don't care what you think. I don't care what you've been told. I don't care what you tell yourself. It's not true. Because it was obliterated, your guilt and your sin and your shame was fully put upon Jesus and God destroyed it. And it doesn't exist anymore. And what you have now is the robe of righteousness of Christ where everything that he's done, everything that he said, everything that he felt, this is beauty, right? The ultimate standard of beauty is Jesus, the one who said it's my meat and drink to do what my father asks. 
He's the only one who ever loved the Lord his God from his heart, with all his mind, with all his soul, with all his strength. And if you're in Christ, you get credit for that. And when God looks at you, he sees you as he sees Jesus. That has to begin to break down the power of what other people think about you. It's not that it doesn't matter, but it doesn't matter, right? It changes everything. It's not your ultimate definition. Therefore, you can be bold. You can stand before God. I love this this quote from Martin Luther, and I'll, I'll close with this. Martin Luther said, listen, when the devil comes to you and he tells you that you're a miserable piece of crap, and he does it all the time, Sometimes he doesn't need to because you're saying it to yourself all the time anyway, and he can go on to other people, right? But when you tell yourself that, when Satan tells you that, Martin Luther said, don't ever argue with the devil. He's much too clever. What you should say to the devil is, devil, yeah, you know, I really am a miserable piece of crap. I don't love people the way I should. I don't, I don't even love God who lived and died in my place. I don't do half the things I'm supposed to. I don't even do half the things that I, I want to do to sort of get you off my back. But listen, go take it up with Jesus, Satan. You don't know the half of it. I'm much worse than you think. But go take it up with Jesus. He lived and died in my place. There's no basis for accusation here anymore. This is the boldness of faith to say, well, yeah, I recognize this picture. But I recognize and I trust in the work of Christ. Therefore, I can stand and know that I'm clothed in clean garments with a royal turban on my head. Do you feel like that? How come the word of God doesn't have more power than the words we tell ourselves? We need God's grace. We need God's spirit. We need each other. We need to remind each other. This is what's true. Not what people tell you, not what the advertisers tell you. I think the advertisers are scared to death that the gospel might actually stir up longings and begin to offer real satisfaction to those kind of longings, the kind of longings that nothing you could buy would ever satisfy. The gospel wants to stir you up to long for this kind of beauty and to say, in Christ you have it. I'll close with this quote from C.S. Lewis. It's back on the front page. We do not marvel, or sorry, he, does, he says, we do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is beauty enough. We want something else which we can hardly put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. Brothers and sisters, this is what Christ offers in the gospel. If you're in Christ, this is what you have. Let's pray together.